Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. I get to be your host today. My name is Mackenzie Sweeney, and I'm here with our guest for our 300th episode, Ari Mizell himself. Ari, welcome to your own podcast. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. We are excited to dig a little bit more on where you came from and understand your mindset a little bit more. So can you start off by telling us what you do in one sentence? Sure. So I usually say that I help the overwhelmed become more effective. And how do you do that? By showing them how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their lives and their businesses, I, I really take what I think is a fairly holistic view and a, a really psychological view in terms of what makes people more or less productive, more or less focused, uh, control freaks, you know, trust issues, all the things that go into what people sort of put under the bucket of productivity. But to me, it's really about being as effective as possible. So doing the right things, not just doing things right. Can you, in your words, define the difference between productivity and efficiency? Of course. Well, so for me, productivity is really just producing more. Uh, and I, I almost I almost cringe using that term with people sometimes because it, it's the one that people relate to most. It's the word that is sort of the one in the in the zeitgeist, I guess, in terms of what we think of being able to be more valuable. But productivity is really just producing more. So product, that's productivity. Efficiency would be producing more with less, and effectiveness would be producing the right thing. So I'm always trying to get to more effectiveness. Gotcha. So it's uh, we see your, your bio in a lot of speaking opportunities as a productivity expert. Of course. We should change it to efficiency and effectiveness. Well, the, and the problem, you know, the funny thing, the problem with efficiency expert is that people think that it's like a, I'm like a manufacturing specialist, you know, so I'll go into a factory and make them more efficient, which you, I guess you could technically, but that's that's usually what people associate with efficiency. It's, it's a misnomer for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, especially when finding your unique ability of being an effectiveness expert, so so often we, we struggle it with ourselves. Um, how did you find that this was the space in which was your true calling? I think that we, we teach best what we most need to learn. So having been in a situation where I was confronted with the literal question of what would you do if you could only work an hour a day because of a debilitating illness that I had, you could either sort of throw your hands up and just let the tide wash over you, or you have to figure out some way to innovate in that situation. And for me, it was an entirely new system of productivity. So really sort of understanding how limitations can help us come up with new ways of getting out of the situations is is how I look at it. Can you actually detail a little bit more about your past? I know a lot of our listeners know um, back in 2006 you were struggling with Crohn's disease, but for the listeners who might be newer, can you help us understand where you came from and how you were able to optimize and understand yourself a little bit better? Of course. So I was working in construction right after college for, for three really hard years. It was, it was a really important project for me in terms of learning project management, motivating a team, dealing with legal aspects, zoning, finance, all that sort of stuff. And I don't think I did most of it particularly well. The thing that I do 
feel confident about at the end of the day was that I was very good at leading a team. And that was what I loved doing. And the way that I did that at the time was that I told anybody that worked on the job that they had to teach me their trade. So I spent the next three years of my life from the age of 20 to 23 learning and doing every construction trade imaginable from bricklaying to asbestos removal and roofing and building roads. I mean, every single thing possible because it was the project I was doing was a historic renovation. I was able to, or restoration rather, I was able to do things that a lot of people don't get to do in their first 15 or 20 years of construction because they're doing new stuff. So it was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. I was not taking particularly good care of my body or my mind. And at the end of the three years, I was in a lot of debt and I had gotten diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And for those who don't know, Crohn's is a chronic inflammatory condition that affects the digestive tract. It's considered to be incurable. It's very painful and very, very debilitating, especially at the time still, even you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it was not particularly well understood. There were all sorts of different modalities in terms of what caused it, what made it worse. And so I went from working 18 hours a day to finding myself in this situation where I could barely do an hour a day. And I was getting sicker and sicker and I was putting on a lot of meds. And in full transparency, the medicines that I was on were a huge saving grace for me. And I think that they really gave me a little bit of a chance to be able to change things. The problem with most situations where people are against traditional medicines is that they don't change their lifestyle. And I drastically changed mine. I stopped eating McDonald's twice a day and smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and drinking uh, excessively at the time every day. And so for me, first of all, starting with the exact opposite of everything I've been doing was the easiest thing to do because rather than thinking, should I try this? Should I try this? No, I was like, I'm just going to do everything completely opposite. Uh, So there was a lot of self-tracking and self-experimentation, nothing insane. And honestly, at the time, this was, I guess, now like eight years ago, there weren't as many cool like biohacking tools like we have nowadays. And you couldn't you know, go sit in a cryo chamber and freeze yourself and all that kind of So a lot of it was really seeing how different foods made me feel. And at the end of the day, the number one biohack, in my opinion, is self-awareness mm-hmm. and proprioception, which I know you'll understand as a, as a yoga instructor. We have so much stuff going on in our lives and our minds all the time that it's it's really easy to just lose awareness of what's happening. And, you know, if you if, if somebody's listening right now and you just say, like, just stop listening to me for a second and think about how your big toe on your right foot feels. You, you just stop and think for a second. Like, oh, yeah, there it is. You know, like you realize that you weren't like in touch with those kinds of things. But that goes in terms of what we eat. You know, so many people get to a part of the day where they are feeling tired or hangry or just angry. Hangritated. Hangritated. Um, <laughs> and, or hypoglybitchy, I think. Is <laughs> yes. And uh, they, the, the problem is they never think, like, who have I interacted with in the last three hours? And what did I eat in the last three mm. hours, right? No one thinks. I mean, really, like, no one really thinks that. And even if they do, it's like, oh, well, whatever. It's just it's a passing thing. But you start to recognize correlations. And then once you see a correlation, then you can start experimenting and then go deep. And then if nothing happens, fine. You try something else. But usually something will. And at the end of the day, I truly believe that control is the antidote to stress. And control can come in many different forms, one of which is information. Hmm. I, I like your point of uh, especially where your mind goes, your energy flows. Um, so in terms of bringing awareness, there are 
mindfulness is a buzzword amongst mm -hmm. everything nowadays and it's almost become the popular thing to be mindful but in uh, in true essence how how do you do you become more mindful and what tips or hacks essentially would you give for mindfulness and we know it's not a slow process but what's one small action item that people can start to do on a regular basis to draw awareness to how either the food or the people are making them feel so there's a there's a few different really low tech and higher tech ways to do this and and you kind of you decide which approach works for you so a uh, really easy one is you take a piece of paper and you have the hours of the day written out, you know, 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12, and just have some reminder on your phone, do it for three days. And just every hour, just write down everything that you did in that last hour. Now, the truth is, is that for a lot of people, and this is the case for me, a lot can happen in an hour. <laughs> and so I might not be able to keep track of everything that does happen. So that, but that's one way. What did you do in the last hour? It's like a little bit of a retrospective. Another one is a bit of a hack, which I did for quite a long time. Um, if you have an iPhone or an Android, you can use a program called IFTTT, which stands for If This Then That. And you can set up an automation that if you take a picture with your phone and you put, it depends on how you want to set it up, but if you put it into a particular album or if you take a screenshot or something like that, you just take a picture of whatever you eat. And don't track calories, don't identify anything, just take the picture. And then you can set up an automation that three hours later, it'll come back to you with that picture and say, how do you feel? Uh, that was an incredibly powerful thing for me. Really, really amazing. Uh, because I started to start to recognize, it's like, oh yeah, I did eat that. And now I feel kind of shitty. Um, it's like, it, it's crazy. You start to see those correlations. Then you just say, well, I'm going to cut that out for three days. And you start to notice things. And placebo effect, it may be, but sometimes perception is reality. And again, I really do believe that that control is a big aspect of it. Another one uh, in, in that way, well, of course, you can do the same thing with people, right? Anytime mm -hmm. you have an interaction, just say, you know, at the end of the hour, who did I meet with over the last hour? And how am I feeling? One to ten. You know, just start to, to recognize that kind of stuff. And even if you don't find some incredibly accurate standard deviation tested, you know, correlation, you just are bringing that awareness back to what's happening in your day and who you're interacting with. And really like what you're doing with your resources especially with the people aspect we're actually at genius network right now a very incredible buzzing event with all these fantastic minds and noticing the people that you're in interacting with a lot of times people can come at the end of these events and feel quite exhausted because of how much energy um, and you're actually an introvert um, yeah. despite, you know, being able to love being on stage and speaking. So how are you able to keep full energy throughout these very high energy and intense events with like minds where this energy is consistently flowing? So there's two things. One is, yes, I am an introvert. And what that means, which a lot of people mistake what introvert and extrovert means, but for an introvert, essentially is somebody who just recharges when they're, when they're on their, by themselves. So for me, I can talk to people all day long and do all that kind of stuff and be on stage, and I love it, but I need to get back to my room, you know, at the end of the day and basically recharge by myself. And that's that's kind of all it takes. Like last night, uh, I did that, and even if it's just going through emails, but just sort of being alone at the end of the day. So I'm not the – I was never the type of person, like in college or whatever, who would want to be hanging out with a per, another person until like 2 in the morning. You know, I'd rather hang out with them until one thirty and then have another half an hour by myself and just be able to recharge. But the other thing is that I'm a, I actually do believe in uh, – my friend Todd Herman teaches this thing called the alter ego. And I do believe that in, in – 
a lot, for a lot of entrepreneurs, for a lot of business people, we have that alter ego where that's the person, that's the identity that is speaking on stage and is talking to people. And it's not inauthentic at all. It's just a particular subset of your personality. And there are things that go along with that. You can have a special pair of glasses or a watch that you wear when you are in that kind of a mode, whatever it might be. But they're environmental triggers so that you get into that place. And I am really good at, like, we're, you know, right now we're sitting in my hotel room recording this, and I'm in one mode. But when we walk into the hall where there's all these people and there's all this activity, like, I kind of click into it. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't quite go so far as to say, like, Ari's not the one doing that kind of thing, but that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. Kind of your own energy or mental space that you're able to hold with people and then space that you're able to hold with yourself. Right. With... Especially on uh, kind of the the trend of you know people and boundaries and health and and hacks throughout. Um, can you tell us your go to your go to either biohack or trend? And as these come in and out, habits can change. Especially with your IFTTT, you know you're not always constantly still doing that. But what is something you're doing right now, biohacking wise, that you would recommend? A lot. So I'm a parent of four young children, five and under. So for me, sleep is something that's very, it's not, I'm not going to say precious. It's just, it's very important that I dial in my sleep. And so last night I got three hours of sleep and I feel fine um, because I am very intentional about how I do that. And so also the, the short answer is a lot of the hacks that I do right now are around sleep. So being able to fall asleep faster, being able to get a very solid block of sleep in less time. Now, and by the way, I wouldn't recommend sleeping three hours a night in an extended period of time, but right now that that works quite well for me. And to the extent that like I wouldn't want to get three and a half hours of sleep. If I'm going to get, I'd rather, if you look at like what your sleep cycles are, they're usually 90 minutes. So I'd want to get four and a half hours or three, but nothing in between because that would just make you end up being really groggy. So I can actually get really energized off of three hours of sleep, surprisingly. Uh, but things like banana tea is a very big recommendation of mine for helping people get to sleep. Wearing blue blocking glasses is something I've been doing for six or seven years, and uh, I find that to be indispensable for sleep hacking. The Aura Ring, the O-U-R-A uh, Ring, is the best sleep tracker right now, in my opinion, and I've played around with that quite a bit. But again, you know, the funny thing is <clears throat> you get to a point with the biohacking where as I said, like the number one biohack is self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So there's all these tips and tools and tricks and things and gadgets. But at the end of the day, you start to develop much better proprioception. And you tend to know like what you need and what your body needs. And you start to listen to it. The biggest thing is I can give you all the advice in the world. And you can get all the information in the world. But if you don't do anything about it, then it's not really that valuable. So that is sort of a long way of saying that. But I would say the sleep hacking is the, uh, the biggest one. I, I'm generally looking at ways to be anti-inflammatory just because of having a chronic inflammation illness before. But that's things, you know, like turmeric and fish oil and cryotherapy is a version of that. Anything that you can sort of do to, to cool inflammation is always something I'm interested in. Can you quick uh, walk us through your banana tea? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculously simple. Uh, it is, and I, I mean this, it is like the number one sleep hack there is it will knock you out. And you can use it for kids and everything. Uh, and the reason being that the skin of the banana has an enormous amount of magnesium in it. So what you do is you take a banana, cut it in half, put it in a boiling pot of water until the banana turns black. Then pour out the water and drink that water. And it's very good tasting and it will put you in a very deep, enjoyable sleep. And a lot of people don't get enough magnesium in their diets anyway because it's a very dense mineral, the pills tend to be very large. Mm. 
which deters many people. And for those who don't know the effects of magnesium, what does it do to your body? It's basically like a nervous system regulator, essentially. So it, it helps uh, with like heart rate variability. It helps with with um, with sleep hormone regulation. So magnesium is is really really important. And and you get it. You can get it through um, like bath salts, for example. Like Epsom salts is is really good source of magnesium. You can get like liquid magnesium you can put on you. So most people don't get enough magnesium in their diets. Mm-hmm. Now, you are also, you have four children under the age of five. Um, you are a, a dad and an entrepreneur, and you live a very integrated life with your work. Can you describe any things you've learned along the way, I mean, through hardship or testing, to give tips to people who are family-oriented, who are also wanting to start their own ventures or scale their businesses? What, you know, how, how are you able to integrate your work and your life? Well, so first of all, I have to say I like that you use word integrate because most people call it a work-life balance, which I don't believe in. Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing, in my opinion. You'll always be out of balance if you're looking for some kind of balance just because you're the same person at the end of the day. You're the same heart and mind and body. So having a work-life integration, understanding that it's, it's, there needs to be levels of compartmentalization that you do. And so that's the number one thing for me is compartmentalization. I'm able to create triggers, much like the alter ego thing, that there are certain modes that I'm in at certain times and other modes that I'm in at other times. And when I am in dad mode or you know family mode, that is the mode that I am in. And there are things around that. Like I don't have my phone with me when we're at home doing that. And I, there's just certain activities that go along with that, which may sound obvious. But the thing is, if you get in this idea that it's easier to act your way into a way of thinking than to think your way into a way of acting. So... Same thing for work, knowing that, you know, there's a particular chair or the glasses or the essential oils that you use when you are working. If you recognize that you create these environmental triggers for being in those particular modes, it makes it a lot more, it makes it a lot easier to switch between them. But the second part of that that is absolutely indispensable is systems for capturing ideas. This is one of the most important things to me in my entire life is that I am an idea person. As most people are, some people are more than others, but entrepreneurs are certainly idea people. And where you lose presence when you're with your family, for example, or you're with friends or whatever, is that you get an idea and you start thinking about it. And the thing is that the human brain is great at coming up with ideas. It's very bad at holding on to them. And also recognizing that there is a different time in your day and your week to come up with an idea versus a time to process that idea. So systems for capturing ideas are everything from having post-it notes around your house to I have two Amazon Echo you know, Alexas in the house that I can at any time say, you know, uh, Alexa, like make a Trello card for this or Alexa, remind me of this. And then even automation. So if I take a screenshot on my phone every night at 8 o'clock, I get a digest of all of the screenshots of the day so that I can think through it. And the re- so, so that at the end of the day, I can be pushing my kids on the swings and have my hands full and all that stuff. But I get an idea. I can capture it in a second and then move on. Mm-hmm. Nothing. That is the single, single most important thing that I can tell people is having proper systems for idea capture will really, really help you with reducing stress, reducing the feeling of overwhelm, and also allowing you to remain present. Allow and be able to trigger that deep thought that does create that innovation. And it's, it's, especially when you say your envi- environmental triggers, it sounds like those are 
your routines or your, your rituals, even if it's one little small thing that when you sit down, you put your blue blocker glasses on, you're going to be doing your content. Um, so having that consistency of rituals and then with your idea capture, being able to set the boundaries and the systems to do as such. One of my favorite ideas that you have presented changed my perspective. It was the idea of replaceability and that can be scary for some people, but can you walk us through what your perspective on replaceability is and how you're able to train and teach that to other people? That's really good timing for that too, because I just figured out this sort of way to replace part of my, what I consider to be my unique ability. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting driving force for me is that I'm always trying to make people think in ways that they can be as replaceable as possible, which is completely contrary to what our egos tell us, right? We need to make every little thing that we do valuable, unique to us, protected by us so that nobody else could possibly even understand how to do it so that they could ever take it away from us. And that's where you end up with people saying that they're so busy Hmm. and that they're so busy. They're so irreplaceable. So irreplaceable because they can book travel (laughs) and I'm not you know trying to trivialize it the truth is that those people do have things that are very valuable but they end up filling in the space with all this other stuff and I and I'm not judging I mean everybody is it's it's a human need is to to make ourselves feel valuable in, in, in any situation we can and be a be irreplaceable the problem is that if you can't be replaced you can't be promoted Right, And you can look at that in any different context. Promotion could be in a company. It could be retiring. It could be getting a big boat. Whatever the next level is, if you can't be removed from the place you are at, meaning that you're the bottleneck, you can't move on to other things. And we should always be looking at how we can be growing individually and as a system. So if you start to look at what you are actually doing with your time and the processes that you go through and documenting them and start to recognize that the seven steps it takes to do that thing you do really could be done by somebody else or maybe a application online or an app or something. It should be very freeing. You should start to recognize that a big weight is being removed from your shoulders because you are no longer this bottleneck. You are no longer a liability. You think about the extreme example of, you know, what happens if you get hit by a bus tomorrow? It's true. It's not the the fear of that is not that you're going to get killed by the bus because you're going to be dead at that point. <laughs> the fear is well, what will happen next? You know, what happens mm-hmm. to the company I built, the legacy I wanted to create, my children's future, my spouse's well being, whatever it might be. And in some ways, it's very lazy to just keep going through your life doing the things that you do because you've always done them. It's a lot harder to stretch our brains and create that neuroplasticity to figure out a better way of doing it. So if you look at it like, how can I replace myself in this situation? First of all, what's gonna start to happen is that your business will get more efficient. Your life will get more efficient because you'll start to recognize all these processes that either you don't need to do or you can do better. But what you also start to find out is that as you chip away at all the stuff, and I always think about the Michelangelo take on sculptures, that the sculpture lives in the block of marble, it's just his job to chip away the excess. So if you do that, you get to what is your unique ability. And you start to find out that that's the thing you really love doing, that you're really good at, that you can really bring value to the world with. Mm -hmm. So in my case, and why I said this was good timing, my unique ability, in my opinion, is as a curator and creator of content. I like to write, I like to speak, I like to do these podcasts. Uh, But I also, for the last seven years or so, I probably follow 150 to 200 blogs a day 
where I'm looking at thousands of blog posts a week. And now I'm not reading them all, but I'm processing and I'm deciding which are the right ones I want to share with our community and on a newsletter and on the podcast and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's a big part of my time. And it's also the kind of thing where if I don't do it for a few days, I, I miss things. So I was really excited this week to be able to train a machine learning artificial intelligence platform to curate content the way that I do. And on one part of what I do, I was able to get it to 87% accuracy. On the other part, I'm at 67%, so I'm still training it. But it's, it's extremely promising, and it removes a very big chunk of what I have to do. And I can still curate, because it's never going to be perfect. But it's something that you would never think could be done by someone else. And yet you're mapping that you thing that is uniquely you onto a computer algorithm. And to me, that's not scary. That is amazing because all that means is that I can do more of the things that I want to do. Especially with growth and in the last four weeks, uh, you've had a lot of growth yourself from stepping back from the virtual assistant company that you co-founded, Leverage, to revive your brand of less doing. And it's, it's been a whirlwind of a four weeks for you. Can you give us some of the, the challenges that you've faced you know, on, on the day-to-day -day and some of the main takeaways that you have from this, this last month? Yeah, I have to say it has been an incredible, incredible ride. I mean, separating from leverage was a decision that was a long time coming and I did not take lightly. And the biggest part, the biggest loss for me was the daily interaction with the 200 plus people on the team that I built. And at the end of the day, it was leverage's idea that I wanted to continue going on and was on a good path to do that. So less doing is what I really love doing and that is the thing of dealing with people and interacting with businesses that have real challenges and I like being the sort of genie in the bottle you know that mm -hmm. somebody has a problem I want to figure out a way to fix it and that's not something that is meant to scale so there's different ways to approach that so now we have a very very small team of which I'm very grateful that you're a part of and I got to do all the things that I knew were inherent to my ability to do, but that I had been blocked from doing because I had been distracted for a long time. And one of the main things was trusting people mm -hmm. and allowing people to be empowered and have more responsibility than they quote unquote rightly should. When I did the separation and I started focusing on what I was doing, a week later basically I was going on a Disney cruise with my family and I was going to be disconnected from internet willingly for the first time in ever <laughs> really ever and seven full days of of off the grid yeah yeah exactly and so what that meant was that i had to have a system in place and i had to have people that i trusted to do things and run things that honestly had not quite been figured out yet and so that was a really really important part of it for me is being able to rely on people that i just know know what they're doing and having that ability, having that trust in someone, to me, is something that can't be manufactured, can't be discovered. It has to just organically happen. And I'm very fortunate that it, has, that it has happened with you and four other wonderful individuals. So uh, now, obviously, I, you, that's not something that you can say to people on the podcast, like, go and do that. But the biggest thing, honestly, from a technology standpoint, was that we set up Intercom, which I've talked about on the podcast many times before, and we set it up with a company email address, which is oao.lessdoing.com, which meant that any one of you could answer an email and deal with it. And that alone, that little communication hack, 
was probably one of the best things that I could have done. And in my absence, not only were you able to handle things, but actually uh, garner new business for us. So setting up proper communication protocols. Most people have an issue with their email when they're there. So having it so that it can work when you're not there is, I think, probably the, uh, the artistry that we were able to achieve. It's almost as if hacks were becoming our, our new strong foundation. Um, the, one of the last things I'd love to talk about, uh, because, especially with the, the leverage team that you cultivated, 200 plus people who had a very close relationship with you, um, your leadership style is, is very specific and it's been a, a topic of conversation amongst um, my colleagues, you know, working, working, working with you at Leverage and working with you at Less Doing. It's, it's something that's very talked about and I have my own definition for it. I, I call it empowerment by mutual respect. But how would you... How do, how do you see your leadership style? I was kind of curious to get your take on it. I like the name of that. Uh, well, yeah, so I, I think that, I don't know if you call it a leadership style per se. I, I, I tend to be very trusting of people in general, I'd say. Not to a fault because it's never been a kind of thing where like I've been taken advantage of because of it. But I am, I, I am quick to trust people and trust them deeply. And fortunately, I, I think I, I guess it's never come back to bite me because I do have a good sense of people. That's that's probably what the best thing is, is that I think I, I read people very well and I can understand what drives them. It's probably what makes me a good coach in what I do. But understanding the motivating factors behind people and whether that is a negative motivator, so something that they're afraid of, or a positive motivator where something that they are truly invested and there's a love there that they want to achieve identifying those things I think really shows people's true colors in a lot of cases so being able to trust people and understand what it is not only that you need them to do for you but what they will be excited about doing for all of you I would say that one way to package that up is that I I try to teach people I do believe that you should never put yourself second now that doesn't mean that you always have to put yourself first but if there's a lot of situations, especially parents, where we're actively putting ourselves second in many situations, as you think about on airplanes when you have to put the mask on yourself first before mm-hmm. helping other people, a lot of people feel like they're consciously or subconsciously martyring themselves in some cases uh, by working harder and taking on the burden, as it were. And all you're doing is reducing people's ability to fend for themselves and creating an unrealistic environment within which they really can't thrive. Mm-hmm. So I have always been a fan of giving people more responsibility than they think they're ready for. I think that they will be ready for, not necessarily that they are, and having people rise to the challenge. I, I, I'm also of the mindset that there are very, very few situations. You know, I'm not a doctor. And I'm not an I'm not an astronaut, so nobody's ever going to die in the world that I live in, right? So, if a person is asked to step up to the plate and they don't do it, and a client is upset or we lose business, it might be unpleasant. It might be a bad situation, but at the end of the day, we learn from it and we do better. So, I think that uh, I guess your way of putting it a lot better than mine, but I guess I would say like. Um, overindulging in responsibility. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the if you break down the word responsibility, it's your respondability, your ability to respond, and it's it becomes an action rather than a reaction. It's it's a, it's a positive thing, and you can choose not 
to act, but yeah. it is an action word instead of a, a reaction. Um, so before we get to your top three tips to make you the most effective, if you are interested in hearing Ari himself, the top three things he would recommend most to be the most effective, go to lessdoing.com slash 300. Anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? I'm really excited about the Less Doing Labs community that we have built to this point of almost 800 members now. Actually, I think we are over 800. And we're looking to double that by the end of the year. We are massively investing time and effort and money into producing more content. We're going to be doing a lot more video and a lot more behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot more uh, more podcasts, more interviews, more webinars, all of the kinds of things that we can do to get you and meet you where you are in order to help you be more effective. So I would just implore people to go to lessdoing.com and check out the labs and see what we've got in store for you. Fabulous. Well, Ari, it was a pleasure getting to pick your brain here today. Thank you for letting me interview on your podcast. And for listeners, if you're interested in joining that Less Doing Labs community, again, go to lessdoing.com. And if you have any questions or your favorite part of the episode, feel free to Facebook, Instagram, and tweet at Ari Mizell. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for joining us today on the Less Doing Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your friends. For more information about Ari and his groundbreaking methods, please visit us online at lessdoing.com and on social media at Ari Mizell. We'll see you next week.